0: Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Uh, I will be telling on myself today. I will tell you some stories where I don't look super awesome um, because I think transparency is helpful, and, and this is something that God is growing me in even today. How many of you guys would, would say, you know, I want to be great. I want my life to matter. I want my life to count, right? Yeah, that's in us, and it's in us because God put it there. But there have been some times in my life where that, that drive for greatness was maybe misaligned or misdirected, and, and so God is going to talk to us through his word this morning about what being great really requires of us, and I just want you to know I'm just sharing my story, and we're on a journey toward greatness together because uh, we serve a great God. So if you brought your Bibles, we're in Matthew 20. I'm, I'm going to share with you the story of a conversation between uh, Jesus and the mother of James and John. James and John were two of his disciples, and she, like every other parent, wants her kids to be great. I've never met a parent who, who meets their child, you know, for the first time in, in the, the hospital, holds them in their arms and goes, oh, my firstborn son, I hope your life is meh. Right? We're like, this, this kid is going to be the next coming of Magic Johnson. And they may have a little more Kurt Rambis than Magic Johnson in them. We don't know yet, but that's just kind of the way it goes. We want our kids to be great. So I, I don't fault this woman at all in wanting her kids to be great. But Jesus explains to her and to the disciples that, listen, the road to greatness may not be exactly what you think it is. So let me set the stage for you. The disciples are on the road up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was one of the high feasts that the nation of Israel would celebrate every year, and it commemorated God delivering Israel out of captivity in Egypt Sixteen, excuse me, 1,400 years earlier. It was a, a miracle of deliverance that they would celebrate every year. They would look back on what God had done, anticipating that God would do it again, because there are throughout the prophets these messianic promises of a deliverer who would come and set them free. And at this point in time, Israel has been in captivity again. They've been an occupied nation for the last 600 years, first by Babylon and then Persia, then by Greece, and now by Rome. And so this was kind of a really a politically charged festival under Roman occupation because the people are coming back to celebrate a God who delivers in anticipation that he would deliver again. The Roman governor would actually move from his headquarters in Caesarea and establish himself in a fortress overlooking the temple. So if a riot broke out, they were able to put it down. So in Jesus, as they're on their way up to Jerusalem, his disciples think we have found the deliverer who is going to go to Jerusalem and lead a rebellion against the Romans, and he's going to win, and we're going to win with him. And so James and John, their mom comes to talk to Jesus anticipating this victory and say, listen, when, when you kick Rome's butt, I want my sons to have a position of influence in your new kingdom. So let's, let's look at the story. I'm starting in verse 20. It says, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. But what is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Well, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Now, when the 10, the other 10 disciples, when they heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. That's Bible talk for they got ticked. Jesus called them together and said, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the other Gospels teach us that this woman who comes to Jesus, her name is Salome, She is the sister of Mary, which means she's Jesus' aunt. So when she comes and says, will you let my sons rule with you? She's basically saying, hey, Jesus, listen, blood's thicker than water. Can we keep this in the family? And can you give your cousins a couple of positions of prominence and let them rule with you? It's not really an outrageous request, but it appears to be pretty outrageous to the other 10 disciples because they get mad. Reading into the story, I'm always curious, did they get mad because they requested these positions of authority, or did they get mad because they didn't think of it first? You just kind of wonder what that dynamic is like. So Jesus responds to her question with a question for his cousins. Like, she asks him, he looks at James and John, and he says, can you drink this cup I'm about to drink? And they're like, absolutely, of course we can. But they have no idea what he's talking about. See, drinking the cup that I'm going to drink, uh, it's it's kind of a word picture of saying, are you willing to identify with me? Now, they think he's going to Jerusalem to kick Rome out. So they're like, you want us to get strapped and go fight with you? Absolutely. Do you remember these guys, their nicknames? James and John are the sons of thunder, right? Like, these are the let's call down fire from heaven guys. They're looking for a brawl. Like, yeah, Jesus, if you want us to fight with you and win, let's go. But Jesus is talking about another kind of cup. Do you remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before Jesus is crucified? And he asked the Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, please let it pass. This is the cup that Jesus is talking about. It's referenced in Isaiah 51, verse 17. The passage says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. That's the cup. You who have stag- drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. This is a verse that is, is, it speaks of people drinking from the cup of God's wrath. It's a picture of what it looks like when we receive judgment for all of our sins. It's so overwhelming, we stagger as if drunk. We can't stand up underneath it. But there is in that same passage this promise that God himself would take that cup from us. It's found in verse 22. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. God can't let sin go unpunished. And so Jesus came to take our punishment upon himself. He knew that he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Though he was sinless, he would die for our sins that we might be forgiven. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And all the judgment that we deserve came to rest upon Jesus at the cross. And so what he's saying to James and John in their drive to greatness is, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, if you want to rule with me, this is the kind of thing that it's going to require. You're going to have to lead the way I lead. You're going to have to lead as a servant. He wasn't telling them that they would become objects of God's anger at sin because we only have one sacrifice, and that is Jesus. But rather that they would have to bear the burden of serving others because greatness in the kingdom of God, authority in the kingdom of God, influence in the kingdom of God is expressed through service. So Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to reorient the way you are thinking about leadership. I'm going to reorient the way you are thinking about influence. Uh, there's, a, there's a theologian, I, I got stuck in the first service, it's either N.T. Wright or Dallas Willard, read them both, they're amazing, who talks about the upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God is not governed the way the kingdom of this world is governed. He he turns the thinking of the world upside down, right? The Bible says if you want to be lifted up, you have to be humbled, right? Things like that. So Jesus is is trying to explain to his disciples, there is a let me just say this, there is a drive to greatness in you, and that is planted there by God. I don't ever want anyone to apologize for wanting to do great things, make a significant impact, or change the world around you. That is God-breathed, God-initiated, and God watches over it that is who he has made us to be. It's when God tells Adam and Eve that that I'm giving you stewardship of my creation, this is what he's telling them. It is your job to make things around you better, to rule on my behalf. But the way God initiates that kind of transformational change is through men and women and children who engage in courageous acts of service. I'm going to show you that now. So Look at t- verse 27. I'm getting excited. i gotta, I got to stay here. Okay. Verse 27. Whoever wants to become great among you, nothing wrong with that. Let's be great. Must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right? So he's, he's telling them this against the backdrop of that word picture of Isaiah 51. Whoever wants to be great, that means in influence, or authority. Whoever wants to be able to exert influence, whoever wants to be able to exert authority, has to be a servant. The Greek word is diakonosa. diakonosa. It's, it's one who executes the commands of a king. So greatness is not something we achieve on our own. Greatness is something we experience, we achieve as we align ourselves with the instructions of our Lord and of our Savior. The church took this word. And you might be familiar with the church word deacon. Deacon was originally in the early church an office that was created by the church specifically for the care of the poor. So the church would identify someone and say, your job is to advocate for and care for those who cannot care for themselves. And the other word picture Jesus uses is a slave, right? Someone who is surrendered to the will of another. This is what Jesus is saying. If you're going to be great, and I know you want to be, it's going to require serving. There is no way disconnecting greatness as God defines it from service. And he would say it's not just any kind of service, but it's the kind of selfless, sacrificial service, Jesus would say, that I am getting ready to demonstrate for you but it's service with a redemptive purpose. It's service with a restorative purpose. I used to hate, if I can use that word, like growing up in the church, we're gonna need to be servants, we need to serve. I hated that word because I thought that it meant that if I wanted to follow Jesus, I had to be a doormat and just let people walk all over me. But that's not what Jesus is saying because the difference between a servant and a doormat is a sense of self-worth. If you understand that you are engaging in service as a representative of the Most High God, if you understand that you are engaging in serving those around you because the king of the universe has commissioned you to do what no other can do, you don't feel diminished. You feel empowered. I am doing this because this is what God has created me to do. Serving is more than just doing nice things. Serving is modeling the gospel. It's caring for people the way Jesus cares for them. And Jesus says to his disciples, as he says to you and me, can you drink this cup? Can you identify with me? Can you join me on this mission? Can you give your life away as a servant, not as an act, but as a way of life? Can you identify with me this way? Because this is what Christians do. They serve as servants. They don't do it for the PR benefits. They don't do it to make themselves feel better about something. Although I got to tell you, most of the time, serving feels really, really good. And do you know why that is? It's because when you choose to step into service, you are aligning with the Spirit of God that is working in and through you. You were created for this purpose. That's why serving feels good. Living as servants is not simply a matter of our actions, but rather our identity. We see ourselves, we model ourselves after our Savior who showed us what service looks like. We serve because we're servants. We're not servants because we serve. You can serve someone and not be a servant. Have you ever had somebody do something for you that didn't actually feel nice, it felt demeaning, like they were kind of pandering to you, I'm awesome, you're not, so I'm going to do something nice for you? That's not a servant. That's just an act of service, and it's very, very different. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that we are to view ourselves. This is another. The Bible ever make you struggle? You ever read something in the Bible like, Jesus, that's hard? Yeah, just me? Okay. This is one of the ones that I read, and I'm like, Jesus, that's hard. Because Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that we are to view ourselves as servants and others as deserving of service. Um, Ouch. It doesn't say that we're to view others as better than us, but let let me just read the verse to you. It's Colossians 2.3. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. He doesn't say they are. There is not one person Jesus loves more than another, not one person who's more important than another in the kingdom of God. But he says, consider others more important. Orient yourself as if they were. Don't fall into empty pride. What's empty pride? Empty pride is believing I'm better than you. Why is it empty? Because I'm not. Paul's like, "Don't, don't get stuck in thinking you're all that because you really aren't. You are not the most important thing. Wendy and I had been married probably six, maybe seven years we lived in a two-story house, and she was doing the laundry, and, and she, our laundry room was downstairs, the bedroom was upstairs, so she had, had emptied the dryer, and she'd taken it upstairs to fold. And I'm leaving the bedroom, going downstairs, and I, she's dropped a pair of socks on the floor, right, on, on the stairs. And I saw the stair, the socks on the stairs, and I continued down the stairs. Husband of the year. And, and sometimes we have those moments where it's like, The Holy Spirit's sitting right next to us going, hey, I want to talk to you about something. And so I'm walking past, you know, and and it's like God goes, there's socks on the stairs. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. Wendy dropped them. She'll get them. And I felt like God just said to me, is she more important? Are you more important than she is? And if I'm honest, I, I would have told the Lord, well, I am to me. But clearly I'm not more important to you. And if you're not more important than she is, John, you need to bend over, pick up the socks, and take them back upstairs, which I did. I picked up the socks. I took them upstairs. I put them with the laundry. I didn't get a high five. I didn't get a gold star. I I wasn't acknowledged for my selfless act of service. I just did the right thing because I'm not more important than Wendy is. And so if there is a way that I can come alongside and help her serve, it's my responsibility to do it. None of us is going to make the case that we're more important than Jesus, more valuable than Jesus. And yet, Jesus treated us as if we were. When you think about the way he has cared for you, the way he has loved you, he lowered himself that he might lift you up. This is the picture of service. When, when I was in college, um, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. That's kinda, that was my goal. Um, didn't want to be a pastor. I knew a lot of them. I didn't want to do that. That was just weird. Um, and so in my junior year, I'm living in Germany because I wanted to learn another language. I wanted to study international law, travel the world, take a ton of money, make a ton of money. And in my junior year, while I'm in Germany, the Lord says, surprise, you're going to be a pastor. So I'm like, okay. So came back to the States, finished out my senior year of college, um, served in a junior high youth group at my church, and then moved up to Washington, prepared to be the best and most amazing youth pastor on the face of the planet. So I enrolled in Bible college, ready to be really, really great, like the Sons of Thunder, and rather than become immediately great, I became the church janitor. Now, gentlemen, I want to talk to you for a minute, because as the church janitor, I clean pee off the bathroom floors. I clean pee off the stall doors. Yeah, ladies are like, oh, guys are like, yeah, what? Um, I cleaned pee off the bathroom walls. And right when I thought it couldn't get any worse, we hosted a scout troop. What is it about you and scouts? The first service did that too. Like, oh, this is going to be bad. I came in one morning and someone had pooped in the urinal. Right? Right? I mean, the amount of dedication and focus that took. But I like to have lost my mind. I am like, what is wrong with you people? Whenever you use the phrase, you people or those people, you have definitely stepped outside of serving, and you're aligning with judging. So my friends are leading youth groups. I'm mopping floors. And I'm getting deeply and profoundly frustrated because they would come in every week like, 10 more kids this week. Three kids got saved. We had, and I'm getting more. And do you know why I'm getting frustrated? Because in my heart of hearts, I know I'm so much better than they are. <laughs> so much better than they are. And if I just get a chance, I'm going to show the world. I thought I was being a servant, but I was very, very wrong. And about the time I'm ready to just throw in the towel, God comes and speaks to me the way Paul spoke to the church in Philippi. This is what God said to me through Paul's words in Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Paul starts talking about our attitude, not our actions? He doesn't say you should behave like Jesus. He doesn't say you should act like Jesus. He says your attitude should be like his attitude. Because if our attitude becomes like-minded with Christ, our behavior will naturally follow. But then he goes on to say, of Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even, even death on the cross. And as I, as I reflected on that passage, I realized I didn't want to serve. I wanted to lead, which was very different in a kingdom perspective. I wanted to change the world, and I wanted to be great, but not because of this burden I had for other people. I just wanted to be great. I wanted to be important. I wanted people to look at me and go, oh, my gosh. What a pastor. What an amazing disciple. I mean, this one's almost embarrassing to say, but I've been honest to this point. Can I be honest again? There's one day, this is so embarrassing. I'm I'm doing lawn maintenance outside of the church, right? And as I am pulling weeds and mowing the lawns, I am working through book titles because people are going to want to read my story when they start hearing about the amazing things God did with me, I think I came to the place where the working title was like the day the fire fell. I don't know why God kept working on me and didn't just be like, yeah, you're done. I'm picking somebody else. I had the drive to be great, but I didn't have the attitude. So God had to work on my attitude. Wayne Cadero says that the quickest way to the throne is through the servants entrance. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not there yet. I am a work in progress. We probably all are, but I will only speak for myself. I won't speak for you. I still fight selfishness. I still fight laziness. I still fight. I still fight my flesh. Like there's some days I just really want to be a big deal. And there's some days I really don't want to pick up after other people. And I want to pretend I don't see the trash on the ground. I, I was walking over to Connections the other day, and somebody had been charging their phone outside, and there's this big styrofoam cup, and, and I, I got all the way to the door without picking it up. Like, this is how I'm a work in progress. And I'm like, okay, sorry, Lord. And I had to go pick up the trash because, listen, if I see it and I don't act on it, I'm saying I'm more important than whoever comes next and has to deal with it. And God is just like, John, you're just not a big deal. I mean, you're my son, and I love you and we're going to do some awesome stuff together, but you're just not all that. I know it's a huge surprise to you because you obviously think I am. Come on now, I just love that Jesus loves me in all of my dysfunction. And and you know what I'm really happy about? I'm happy about we can buy the kind, be the kind of family where I can just go, can I tell you where I'm not batting a 1,000? Can I just tell you and not... Worry that you're not going to come back. If I don't see you next Sunday, I'm coming after you. Because I'm going I'm to accuse you of being judgmental. No, i just... Here's the cool thing about serving. The way God works in and through us. When you serve, God's fingerprints are all over you. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, make a couple of outrageously awesome statements. It says God created you in your inmost being. Like he was intricately involved in every single part of you. It says he, he knit you together in your mother's womb. It says you were, there's this picture, he says you were woven together in the depths of the earth. David in that psalm is using language descriptive of a master craftsman about his or her work. There is nothing accidental, nothing haphazard about you. God had a specific design in mind as He formed you. That's why none of us look like somebody else, unless you're a twin, but you're still different. Still holds up. Ephesians 2:10. We are God's workmanship. That Greek word is poema. It means handcrafted work of art. We, you and I, are God's handcrafted work of art, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God created you exactly the way he wanted you to be, formed you intricately, intentionally, and on purpose. There is nothing accidental about you. And as he formed you in your mother's womb, as he made you exactly the way he wanted you to be, there were specific things that he had in his mind and in his heart for you to do before you were ever born. That's what this says. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. You were created on purpose and with purpose. And the way we express those good works is by assuming the posture of a servant as Jesus did for us and living out that way in our families and in our community. He created you with a purpose in mind and for things that only you were created to do. The word good works here is found a couple other places. It's found in John 14, where Jesus says of you and I, you will do greater things. It's the same Greek word than Jesus did because he was going to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit. It's the same phrase that you find in Matthew 5.14 that says, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. There is something about how God designed you and what he releases you to do that points people to Jesus. John, I'm not a preacher. I'm not talking about preaching. I'm talking about living as a servant. There is something that God does by his spirit that can't be explained any other way that as you and I align with him and serve in a way that reflects his love and his mercy and his compassion, it points people to Jesus. This is what he made you for. I'm more excited about it than you are. Listen. I'm not putting pressure on you. I'm not getting ready to say, now go do this. I just want you to understand what God had in mind for you and for others when he made you. You are the answer to a question that somebody has. You're the solution to a problem that someone is facing. You are the fulfillment of a need that somebody else can't meet. And God says, as you step into those places, by the direction of my spirit, I come with you, and they are brought to an awareness of God the Father. These acts of service are an expression of God's love to that person. He's prepared them. Here's the catch. He's prepared them. We still have to what? Do them. Thank you, you three in the front row, who are with me. Let's try that again. Here's the catch. He's prepared them, but we still have to. Yes. God partners with us. He invites us. He doesn't twist our arms and he doesn't coerce us. Your service to your family, to your community, to your workplace, to your church is significant because God makes it significant. These are the specific good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. That's why scripture says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters because there are good works before you that God prepared in advance. Let me close with this, just this thought. I want you to catch this with me. Serving is how God expressed his love for humanity. Serving is a love letter from God to mankind. There are other ways that he expressed his justice, his mercy, his righteousness, but serving is how he expressed his love. Where do I get that? John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. And what was the result? Jesus' selfless act of service changed the course of human history. It changed the nature of our relationship with God. It unified people who had been at war for generations, and it released the power of God to reside within mankind. That verse I read a moment ago said, Paul says, your attitude should be like this. It should be the same as Christ. One of the ways to understand that is you and I should understand what our service, what our lovingly engaging with other people can actually produce. The world considers service losing. It's something for the weak. God considers it greatness, and I submit to you, it is only possible for the strong. Living a lifestyle of service, living as a servant to your family, your community, your work, is o- it's not possible for people who have not encountered the, the presence of the loving, living God. You just can't do it. You'll maintain for a while, but unless you have this understanding of what God has already done for you, it's going to run dry. But when we live as a people who who are are constantly engaged with a loving God and we realize the depth of his love for us, these other things flow out of us. It just becomes a natural outpouring. But it starts. Begins with knowing that you are loved by God, I actually want to take a moment and invite Matt to come, and he's going to he's going to minister over us on the piano for a minute, because I think some of us are wrestling with an understanding of how deeply God loves us. And so I'm going to pray for you and for me that we might freshly encounter the love of God. And if you're comfortable with closing your eyes and just having a private moment with Jesus, I would encourage you to do that. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, keep your eyes open. That's fine. I believe God wants you to know how deeply loved you are. It's amazing to me that God never asks us to do something that he hasn't already done for us. doesn't release us into ministry or service that he hasn't equipped us to do. So we're going to be still for a moment. Just let the Lord remind us how deeply loved we are. Holy Spirit, come visit every heart. Come visit every mind. Remind us how loved we are. I feel like some might be challenged by what I said about God making you just the way he wanted you to be. You may look in the mirror and be thinking, God, you made a mistake. I don't like that. I just want to remind you, those aren't my words when I say that. Those are God's words. He says you're fearfully and one you made. He says you are a handcrafted work of art. God made you exactly he wants you to be. And my prayer for you in this moment is that you might discover the beauty in yourself that God already sees. Secondly, I feel like there might be some who are saying, John, I hear you say that we're loved and I believe that's true of other people but I don't think that's true of me. Messed up too many times, disappointed God too many times. I just want to say to you, You have never been more loved by God than you are right now in this moment. There is nothing you could do to make him love you more. There is nothing you could do that would make him love you less. You are his daughter. You are his son. Scripture says, in whom he delights. Actually says, you make him so happy, he he rejoices over you. He dances with delight and sings because of how happy he is in you, his creation. Lord, this morning, for any of us who are wrestling with a sense of identity or purpose, struggling to believe that you could love us as we are, would you, Lord, wherever that has come from, if it's been hurtful words that have been spoken over us, if it's become, come from someone misrepresenting you, would you just flush all of that out of our heads, out of our hearts right now, in Jesus' name. Lord, if any are afraid of you, God, your word says perfect love casts out fear because love has to do, fear has to do with punishment. But we are a people forgiven. Let us be strengthened. Let us be encouraged. Let us be uplifted. God, let let whatever service you invite us into from this moment on, come out of, a, out of an outflow of the overwhelming love of God that we ourselves have first experienced. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Would you stand with me? I wanna, I wanna speak a blessing over you before you go. We'll, we'll be talking about what service looks like practically and some other stuff next week. Just two things. One, uh, if there's anything that we can pray with you for, Our prayer team is going to be available here to my left, your right, as we dismiss. They would love an opportunity to partner with you, agree with you in prayer. I I have this, this benediction on my heart that I just want to speak over you as we go out into our week. It's found in Romans 15, verse 13. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are loved, you are valuable, you are essential, and you are equipped to be used by the Most High God. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.